Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friend Wrap. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and I apologize for any background noise you might hear from my inverter. I'm currently load shared. I'm joined today by Mr. Marius Root. Marius, how are you doing today? And welcome to the show. How's it, Nick? Thanks for having me. So let's get into our news stories of today. And the first one is a big announcement by the multi-party charter, as uh, sorry, the multi-party charter as part of their election campaign, arguing as to why they should be placed in government in 2024. They say that they will be the only group of parties who will be able to end load shedding. They had a joint statement outside one of ESCOM's power stations, and they announced a 10-point plan to tackle load shedding. They say they will expedite the unbundling process of ESCOM to produce a separate transmission company, which will be a standalone grid and market operator. They will abolish the Ministry of Electricity and house its existing functions within uh, its functions in existing ministries. They will ensure that appointments at ESCOM and other energy sector leadership roles are based on merit, eliminating political interference in board in the board management of ESCOM. They will invest heavily in maintaining and upgrading grid infrastructure. They'll create a conducive regulatory environment for the construction of microgrids. They'll establish a competitive electricity supply market where multiple electricity producers can compete on an open platform. They will facilitate and encourage the wheeling of power between distributed generators and customers through transmission and distribution grids by approving standard wheeling tariffs. They will aggressively promote demand-side management to reduce electricity demand, will incentivize the rapid rollout of rooftop solar panels through feed-in tariffs, tax rebates. They will collaborate with domestic and international partners to achieve a rapid and just energy transition from coal to cleaner and more diversified sustainable energy sources. Now, um, that sounds all good to me for the most part. Uh, I do think, though, that there are probably some issues. I also am always annoyed when the word nuclear is not specifically mentioned, even if it's not excluded by the participants. Um, but, Morris, what do you make of these uh, proposals, and will they actually be able to fix ESCOM is the big question. I mean, yeah, all on the face of it, all looks pretty good. You know, there's nothing that you can really argue against uh, it might have been, yeah, obviously there's some things you could nitpick about, you know, it's like it uh, doesn't uh, um, explicitly name nuclear, like you say, and so on. But I think the problem is just with the country as a whole, uh, turning uh, around ESCOM, I think it's going to be such a difficult task. I think there's so many vested interests in ESCOM now, uh, ranging from, um, uh, you know, criminal elements to people within the ANC and all kinds of things. It's... So just to be able to turn ESCOM around, it's going to be such a difficult task, I think. And uh, I think that's also what's a, a problem with actually uh, South Africa as a whole. If, say, say in, uh, in the election later this uh, yeah, the DA wins uh, wins outright by itself, 51%. Let's just, you know, we all know that's not going to happen, but let's pretend it is going to happen. Uh, I think would it be so difficult for the ANC, um, for the DA, sorry, there's a Freudian slip, for the DA to turn things around, that uh, after five years, people might just, you know, decide, well, you know, the DA didn't manage to change anything. So we might as well just vote for the other lot again. And that's happened around the world where people have voted out uh, parties that have been in power for a while and things don't change. I mean, uh, India, I think we've spoken about on the show before, is an example. They voted out the Congress party there in the late 1970s. Uh, I think the next election was only three or four years later. Then Congress got the biggest majority yes. ever got uh, in an election because people were, didn't want to put up with, like, the opposition was all the kinds of infighting and they didn't manage to really change anything. So I think that's a risk that uh, South Africa faces, but I think that as a microcosm of it, I think that's what uh, ESCOM could be. 
it could be so difficult to fix and to actually change. I mean, it's, it's not impossible, but I just think there's so many vested interests standing against it. Right. This is one of the reasons I think why the police need to urgently be reformed, because one can imagine the problems that would emanate from uh, ESCOM that that a new government was attempting to fix. Those vested interests we've already seen are very capable of doing things like sabotaging the infrastructure to enhance their own bottom lines. And that kind of thing would be, I think, pretty rampant, even if you had all the right ideas. And for the most part, the multi-party charters ideas do seem like the right ideas to me. Um, but it's not just going to take the right ideas. It's also going to take a lot of political skill and um, some good leadership to avoid that scenario that you're talking about, which is not an uncommon scenario. You mentioned India. Argentina is another place. The Peronists, who were in power for a long time there, lost out uh, to a moderate reformer who then wasn't able to successfully carry through a lot of his reforms. And the Peronists then swept back into power. Now, They've just been thrown out by Javier Mille, so it's not like the story ended there, but it's still worth keeping in mind that, uh, you know, opposition parties don't have unlimited goodwill, even if the ruling party's been in power forever. And also a problem with that, whatever you think of Javier Mille, he's got some quite out there ideas on economics. So I think uh, if you have this kind of, you know, left-wing Peronist who kind of ruined everything, you vote uh, and they get voted in again, the, the kind of pendulum swung all, you know, very far across. I mean, I don't, I'm not one of these guys who thinks Malay is necessarily a, a fascist or anything, but he does have some quite crazy ideas on the economy, which has never really been tested at a national level uh, ever. So it still remains to be seen whether what he wants to do can work. So, you know, I wish him luck. It'll be interesting to see what happens there, but I think that's an example of it. So the pendulum in Argentina swung all the way to the quite, uh, you know, quite far away from the center for, uh, you know, in a couple of cases now. I have read somewhere, I think that Mila is a, uh managing to achieve the first budget surplus in 12 years in Argentina. So mm. that does seem like a pretty good development. Um, but like you say, you know, the presidency is not made in the first year. It's usually mm. uh, something you can only really tell after you've gotten a while in. Okay, let's move uh, to South Africa's overcrowded prisons. So the National Police Commissioner, Fani Masomola, uh, has said that he thinks that it may be time to stop sending so many people to jail. Now, the story that I was reading this from, the specific crimes from which he said people should not be jailed for were uh, not mentioned. However, he did say that there should be non-custodial sanctions for certain crimes because the country's prisons were overcrowded. He said the country's prisons are housing 48% more than capacity and the numbers are only increasing. He said that that prison time was not always the best solution for conviction of certain crimes. Quote, Less serious convicts, they learn a lot while they are incarcerated. By the time they get released, they are graduates. And once they are graduates, they will do and behave like that. They are not afraid to do anything. Um, Maurice, what do you make of this? I mean, on one hand, you know, just kind of opening the gates because everyone, the prisons are too overcrowded is, doesn't seem like a particularly good thing. But on the other hand, he's definitely got a point in saying that uh, prisons can sometimes make it, particularly when they're badly run, can make minor criminals into major criminals. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think uh, that's exactly it. Uh, and I definitely think if people who've been convicted of non-violent crimes, uh, depending on what kind of non-violent crime, uh, should definitely uh, be rather uh, sent, uh, have custo- non-custodial sentences than custodial ones. Um, but now that also comes down to a problem. I mean, prisons are overcrowded for a whole host of reasons. But will we be able to monitor people who, who do have non-custodial sentences? Do we have the manpower and the technology? For example, say somebody has been 
whatever, let's say for argument's sake, he's, he got two years for selling uh, weed or something, you know, and, I, and you know, he's just a guy, just low-level guy, sold some, sold some weed, gets two years for argument's sake. Now, and they rather decide to give him a non-custodial sentence and put him under house arrest. But will there be the manpower or the technology to make sure that he is following the conditions of his sentence and, you know, maybe not leaving the municipality or the province or whatever the case is, or, you know, staying at home on weekends or uh, in the evenings as you're supposed to when you're under house arrest. I mean, uh, I would be very surprised if there is a, if we do, would have the manpower or the technology. I know in the UK, for example, uh, people have to wear those kind of uh, tags around their ankles to make sure that they only leaving the house when they're supposed to. I mean, would we have the money to pay that kind of technology? Would the people uh, um, making people wear those kind of anklets, would they be above taking a 500 rand bribe to, you know, disable the thing or whatever the case would be? So it comes down to a whole bunch of issues. On the face of it, I think there's a good idea. Uh, I don't think for non-violent crimes, people should be in jail. And I think, I mean, th this is something we've known for many years, that if you go to jail for, uh, you know, something fairly low level, if you're in jail for two or three years, people get involved in gangs out of necessity. To protect themselves and they end up um you know getting taught all kinds of terrible things in prison and also they they start kind of like they, they sort of uh, start belonging to something and when they leave prison and they you know carry on being in the gang and you've created quite a, a hardcore criminal instead of somebody who maybe just made a mistake once and you know sent them to jail now three or four years later they uh you know a member of a hardcore gang so on the face of it, it's a good idea but will we be able to monitor people who do have non-custodial sentences that's the problem but you know, our prisons are obviously overcrowded and that's also uh, a problem. And whatever you think of prisoners, they're still human beings. They still need to be uh, kept in decent conditions. They can't, they shouldn't be where it's overcrowded and where it's dangerous and so on. So I think one of the things that is emphasized here is very similar to the last story is that no matter what your solution is to the problems of prisons, whether it's giving people different kinds of sentences, like the non-custodial sentences, or whether it's just simply building more prisons or whether it's better running prisons, you need to have a functioning police and a functioning state. And until some of those basics are fixed that uh, improve our police service and improve our prison service and improve our state's ability to monitor things and administer stuff, uh, you won't really be able to fix any problems um, at all. Uh, but anyway. Uh, just as an aside, I just read a book by Rory Stewart, who ran for prime minister a couple of years ago. He was a prisons minister uh, in the UK for a bit, uh, for six months or a year, whatever the case was. And just... The story is even about British prisons, and obviously the UK is a much richer country than South Africa, probably with a you know smaller proportion of prisoners as a, a proportion of the population. I'm guessing there, but even the stories about British prisons it makes it's quite terrifying. So you just imagine how much worse it is in South African prisons. Definitely. All right, for our last story, um, those who have been following the news closely will know that South Africa has recently sent a South African development community intervention force to the eastern. Democratic Republic of Congo. We're not the only country involved. A lot of our neighboring countries are also involved there, but we are the leading it. Um, and this has raised several objections. One of them has been about the cost of the uh, of the expedition, whether South Africa can really afford it right now. But the other question is whether South Africa has the capacity, or are we just sending our soldiers into harm's way when they have not a very good chance of uh, being able to affect change or even um, survive necessarily. And part of the problem there is that South Africa has uh, no effective working air support at the time because our helicopters are either under repair or broken or, or been shot recently by rebels in the Eastern DRC who are no um, 
pushovers by any means. And highlighting this problem with our Air Force, um, I think, is this little story that I saw today, which is that soaring temperatures of the South African Air Force headquarters in Pretoria forced the shutdown of the head office after a complaint by the South African Defense Union. Apparently, the ventilation system in the Air Force headquarters is broken, and as a result, this week, temperatures in the building soared to 39 degrees inside the building, which is absolutely crazy. The union filed a complaint saying that the building's conditions were intolerable. The Department of Labor did an investigation and has closed the building for seven days, demanding that the uh, Defense Ministry comply and get the system sorted out. Morris, I think this kind of just says it all about why our Air Force is in a state that it can't support our troops who are in danger's way. Yeah, this is pretty much a dog bites man story, I think. Uh, it's nothing yeah, that's uh, too surprising. Uh, you know, the Air Force can't even uh, keep its officers uh, in decent nick. Uh, so why should we be, be surprised that it can't maintain a very expensive and sophisticated aircraft? Uh, and yeah, uh, as I say, we're sending uh, South African troops into quite a dangerous situation. We're probably going to be, uh, they, they might be shooting, uh, um, they, they might actually uh, be shooting battles between South African troops and Rwandan troops, as we were saying before the show. And Rwandan troops are probably a lot better equipped and a lot better trained than South African troops. And uh, we're sending guys in there without the proper equipment, without proper air support. And I hope that we have very low casualties because, I mean, it's obviously DRC is an important place. I think it's, it is probably right that we are involved there. But we can't go send guys out there without what they need to protect themselves and to protect the people that they are going out there to actually help the ordinary Congolese. So yeah, it's it's not great, and I think yeah, as you say, it's a pretty much a microcosm of the South Af of uh, the state of South Africa. I think. Indeed. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. We hope that you found this show interesting. We will be back tomorrow with the Daily Friend Wrap. Cheers, everyone, and that's a wrap.